whatever you do, She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Listen, asshole! No, you listen, you little bitch! You hang up on me again, I'll cut you like a fish! Who the hell my Jeep fucking king of the zombies? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Now I want you two to get good rest. What if I have a bad dream? Well, I'm sure we can handle any dream you have. What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and me get hurt? Really hurt? <laughs> What if I'm so sad and scared of the dark out there that I put poison in me for years and years until my blood turns into poison and my heart breaks right in half and I can't feel anything happy. Until I can't stand it anymore and I, I have to die. Time on a silver table. Is my jaw wired shut? <laughs> Would you wake us up from a dream like that? We're not like any other family. We're different because of where we grew up. Hill House. Your mother, she was not crazy. Neither was your sister, neither is your brother, neither are you. It's that house. Hey folks, welcome to this bonus episode of Devour the Podcast. Uh, this is a what would typically be a sort of, hey, l- let me catch up on what I've been watching. But we're going to do something a little different in the upfront here. We are going to be talking about the 10-episode horror miniseries on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, uh, d- created and directed and, and written by uh, Mike Flanagan. Yeah, so, but I'm not going to do this alone because it's just too much to cover. And so I've enlisted the aid of the Devour the Podcast co host, Vanessa McHenry. Hello, Vanessa. Hello. And uh, we were also joined, sort of at the last minute, by uh, Court Psyops, who has also uh, watched the entire series. So, welcome, Court. Hi. Glad to nudge my way in there and just be a pain in everybody's ass. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's what you're best known for. It's true. 
We wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely appreciate because originally it was, it was Vanessa and I, which w- was great. I'm, don't get me wrong. But when you decided <laughs> that you wanted to do it too, it's like, oh, well, this feels like a real thing now and not just Vanessa and I, you know, bullshitting about uh, the Haunting of Hill House. But okay, so y- Vanessa was just saying, and I, w- I wanted to start the show before we got too deep into it. You've been immersed in all things Haunting of Hill House because of the VD Clinic episode. Right. We just recorded two days ago on Sunday for our end of October uh, episode. We're reading The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and covering the 1963 Robert Wise movie, The Haunting. And yes, we did talk about the abomination of the 1999 movie, The Haunting, but we did not delve really into this because at that point I had seen six episodes and everybody else had seen less or none. So I couldn't really get into the nitty gritty and I have thoughts and I have, yeah. And I'm a huge, huge fan of the source material. Right. So let's, if you'll indulge me because this is one of my favorite things ever. (laughs) <laughs> Both. Let, let's talk about the the opening of the novel, which begins, and and as does the Mike Flanagan miniseries, begins with these words: "No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills." holding darkness within. It had stood for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Now, this is maybe my favorite paragraph, opening paragraph of any book ever. Yeah. Uh, It is... It is beautifully written. It captures the the, uh, the the sensible dread of Hill House. And I get a chill every time it's read out loud like that. And I also rolled a tear on the show when that was read out. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into this shit. Because I watched the the haunting, the sixty three haunting today. As a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you know, it's Halloween and you got to fit that in somewhere during the Halloween season. Cause it's just one of the best horror films ever made. That's uh, my, that's my one. I watch every year, if not on Halloween the night before. And let me just say this, this is another diversion. Always. I swear to God, we're going to talk about the miniseries <laughs> here in just a second, <laughs> but it's amazing to me that the 63 version of the haunting gets its gay character more right than the 99 film. Yep. 36 years later, they fuck that character up in a way that's like, what are you doing? It was so good. Like, it's not over. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say it's not overt. It's totally overt in the 63 film. It's just they don't label it's it. It's coded. Yeah. It's, oh, no. We got into a whole big discussion about the coded queer aspect. Yes. Oh, yeah. The whole thing yeah. about, like, is she married? And, 
you know, the pronoun game she plays. And oh, good lord, the moment where uh, Eleanor says that she is like an she abomination, is the right? Well, and that's the right. It's that was the only way you could portray that character. Which now, by the time you have dun dun dun, this mini series, even though this mini. Sorry, there is not a... I haven't made a segue, but I'm already starting to talk about the series here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though the premise of the series is not exactly the same, and, you know, it does borrow the names and character traits and weaves all these different elements of the original source material into it, Um, it, it, it at least with the Theo character, it allows her to be queer and it's just it just is yeah the reveal to her family the whole bridesmaid gag it's so funny it is such it's such a nice moment of like Mm -hmm. you know oh uh, we didn't know you were into what bridesmaids yeah exactly and that's all it is yeah and then they just laugh and and then there was the bit later where at the wedding where they're they're uh luke is it yeah it's no 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 it's uh uh shit it's it's steve it's nell and and steve. and steve the oldest brother yeah yeah watching shirley as theo dances with a bridesmaid yeah to b- basically wagering like on the, like when how is long she... it's gonna take her to realize <laughs> right that her sister's gay right yeah <laughs> and it, which is also this really wonderful family moment and i guess maybe that's where to begin this conversation is this is the stephen kingiest movie that ever Stephen King, in my opinion, (laughs) even though it is based on The Haunting of Hill House. And as you said, it has a lot of the trappings of the Shirley Jackson, both the novel and the movie. But Shirley Jackson and Stephen King has said it. Shirley Jackson is a huge influence on Stephen King. Absolutely. No, it's like they did Rose Red again, only better (laughs) with this show because it's Rose Red was so ripping off. Shirley Jackson's so, Haunting of Hill House, and they right. did it this way with this show, but they made it fucking really good. And I yeah. love Rose Red, don't get me wrong. Eh, it's okay. But, yeah, but it's it's no The Haunting from Netflix and Mike Flanagan, absolutely. I mean, this this surpasses it in my mind, but I actually enjoyed it when it was on. Yeah, well, what this movie does, or what this miniseries does that I, I think is so impressive, is that it it puts character first... And the first five episodes, and let's, fair warning, this will be in the show notes as well. We're going to spoil the shit out of this. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, d- just stop right now, you know, turn back, and then skip ahead to uh, the the time code in the show notes, because it's worth it to experience this for yourself. But uh, the first five episodes are about each of the kids. Yeah, it ta- each episode takes uh, one of the children and kind of provides their backstory. And you get little snippets of the story along the way, both the original uh, 1992 era when the family moved in and experienced this horrible uh, situation that led to the death of the mother, as played by Carla Gugino. And then we also have... Uh, a lot of the the miniseries taking place in 2018, which is following the death of the youngest daughter Nell uh, or Eleanor. You know, if you want to, it, when when she got married, it was like, oh, I'm going to be Eleanor Vance. It's like, oh, you guys, 
Yep. Well, well done. Um, exactly. I know that's exactly what I thought. But also, I like the fact of her husband is named Arthur. And there's an Arthur character who is an investigator in the book who was left out of the haunting movie. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it was a nice little, they were little things like that that were nods back to the book and to Shirley Jackson's life. So, like, come on, you had one of the doc- <laughs> daughters named Shirley. Yeah. Sure, of course, and and maybe well, notably, he was reading the lottery at a point. Yes, there there's a lot of like Mike Flanagan <laughs> litters this uh, miniseries not just with ghosts, but with little nods to actually his own work, like the uh, the mirror from and, Oculus is in it. Yeah, and how many of the same actors? Yeah, he has he's got a stable of actors now, and I'm all for it. I think, uh, but where I want to kind of begin is. Because it is a family drama first, uh, seemingly uh, family drama first, it is um, Timothy Hutton slash Henry Thomas, who I did not realize looked alike until I saw this. I was like, holy shit, they look just alike. Right? Except for those weird contacts they put on freaking Henry Thomas. (laughs) I'm fine with it. Uh, (laughs) I didn't think that they looked alike either until all of a sudden I was like, whoa, oh my god. (laughs) Right. They, they com- <laughs> look completely alike. They could be doppelgangers. Um, right. Uh, Carla Gugino as as the mother. Um, Who I always love. Yes, she is. I, I've loved her for uh, a very long time and largely. Since son-in-law. <laughs> Anyone with a pulse is into Carla Gugino. Anyone with a pulse. Well, I don't even care what you're into. You're into her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not only is she a very good actress, but I mean, just a stunningly beautiful woman. Um, but so she is Olivia, the, the mother you have Steven as played by Michael Hoosman. Um, you have, uh, Violet McGraw as young Nell. You have Victoria Pedretti as older Nell, Henry Thomas. We mentioned Lulu Wilson is young Shirley. Um, older Shirley is Elizabeth Reeser. Uh, Julian Hilliard is playing young Luke who, oh my goodness. What a little heartbreaker yeah. that guy is. Oh, uh, my God. He's, uh, he's just so adorable. Um, Oliver Jackson Cohen plays older Luke, who is also quite a heartbreaker. Um, and then you have Kate Siegel playing older Theodora. And young Theodora is uh, <laughs> McKenna Grace is, is young Theodora. Who reminded me so much of myself at that age. She is. Uh, okay. So let's. Now that we've introduced. Oh, and it, just one quick note uh, for Annabeth Gish as Mrs. Dudley, who gets to have the coolest line in the movie, which is no one will come any closer than that in the night, in the dark. In the dark. Uh, I mean, the line, the line was good in the book. It was good in 63, and it's good here. Um,. So I want to start by asking you guys, now that we've established who all these characters are, give me, uh, who were your favorite characters and, and kind of why? Uh, Vanessa, who did you enjoy following in a, in a miniseries, I would argue, littered with truly good, deep, complicated characters? Yes. And now I have to say, I was of two minds going into this, that when I heard they were making The Haunting of Hill House, one of my favorite books, into a miniseries, I was thrilled. And then when I heard it was 
going to be done by Mike Flanagan. I was even more thrilled. But then I heard it wasn't going to be exactly The Haunting of Hill House, the story that we know already. And so I was like, mm, I don't know, do I want to see that? But I was also still like, mm, but it's Mike Flanagan, okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I was gonna still going to try to go into it with an open mind. But I figured I'd at least enjoy it enough because it's Mike Flanagan. I was more than just, I was more than pleasantly surprised. I've, I, I really enjoyed it. And the way that it was crafted to intertwine these pieces of the original source material, but make it its own, I appreciated. To make it the family drama amidst the haunted house. Like, every family has, it, you know, skeletons in its closet. Yeah. And it deals you know, very specifically. Secrets. I mean, it's, it's a whole metaphor. Yeah, and and very specifically about the effects of a suicide on a family. Right, right. And then the whole debate, and this is actually a big discussion we got into the other day, is that how much of this can be chalked up to mental illness? How much can be chalked up to the supernatural? And I, I find that a very fascinating concept to begin with. So to see this family in particular, I'm getting to, I'm going to answer your question eventually. <laughs> <laughs> She's getting there. Just let her go on the yeah. journey. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yes, go on. Okay. So, um, so to see this family that already has a certain dynamic put into this situation and this environment and the way that the house plays on the personalities and how those experiences and then potential mental illness in the family affects each individual person. And for me, when it got down to, I, there wasn't a character I was disappointed with, but I would say probably Shirley was the one that I was least into yeah, well, I, for me to start there, but I really want the character like Luke, his story, and then Theodora being a close second. Those two stories were so strong, and I wanted to know more about that. I Shirley is one of those characters for me that as soon as, particularly the moment where she insists on taking care of Nell's body. It was like, yeah. oh my god, that is my aunt. You know, like, it, she is the one who crawls up on the cross any time that the opportunity presents itself. And But also, she's perfectly understandable. Like, I understand that character perhaps all too well. But also, yeah, she she's sort of the least fun character just because she is the self-appointed martyr of the family. Right, right. But that said, like... Luke, uh, I, I think everyone can get behind Luke because he is a character that you want to root for. You know, he is the, mm -hmm. the the wounded boy who just can't get rid of his demons. Um, yeah. You know, Theo, I probably relate to a lot uh, only because mm -hmm. she is, she's the character that, that 
isolates herself, um, and, and both emotionally and physically in a lot of ways. No, and then, uh, no, and I think that's, I, I, I am right there with you on that because yeah, I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, and like all these characters have such great arcs, but, um, and then of course, Nell, who is this damaged young woman who is trying to find some measure of happiness and can't seem to make it, you know, right. um, and uh, worth pointing out, uh, that, the actress playing Nell, uh, Victoria Pedretti, this is the first major thing she's done. And yeah. and she is staggeringly good in it. Um, Flanagan's got a good eye for talent, doesn't he? <laughs> no shit. Uh, oh, absolutely. So, even, even these kids. Oh, can we... <laughs> kid actors are always kind of dicey, but... <laughs> yeah, well, he's got... Uh, what's her name? The one that was in Ouija Origin of Evil. Uh, Violet right. McGraw? Is that her? Yeah. Um, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's not... That's no, no, not no. It. Anyway. Uh, I'll find it here in a second. The one... Lulu Wilson. The one who played um, the younger Shirley. Um, oh yeah, that's right. So, and she's really good in. But all right, so Court, uh, you know, I, uh, just to round out, I think my personal favorite character, I think my least favorite was Stephen, just because he was, he felt very much like the the the, the more rote character in terms of the the entire family. Um, I was always intrigued by both. Uh, Theo and Luke and Nell, those were my three that anytime they were on the screen, especially young Luke, holy shit. Oh, yeah. That, mm. those Coke bottle glasses on that poor little kid. <laughs> oh, and he just had like that, not a lisp, but just that very childish way of speaking. And the he was a 17th century waif dragged into the 19th century, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally was. Yeah. If, please, will someone, please come with me to my twee house. Yeah, right. Like, I want some, please, though, I want the more. Uh, yeah, I, he was, he was so adorable. Like, every time he was on screen, you just wanted to hug the poor kid. Um, but, Court, what about you? Any characters that were really standouts for you? Yeah, actually, I really identified. With Steven's character at the very end, whenever he comes to this realization of what he had been doing the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I think, Bo, the reason that he feels the most written of a character for you is because he, as a human being, has been writing his own narrative about the things that he experienced. And he was using his skills as a writer to live in his own denial and tell the story his way. He was not going to accept any narrative that was not his own. And that's why his character felt like he was just this total narrative drive the whole way through. I would, I would kind of submit that that was a, uh, like a sort of like a literary ploy to push him forward to where you're like, Oh, I just don't care about you. You're not interesting. All you want to do is talk about your version of the story. And then by the end of it, you realize that was his defense mechanism because when that wall comes down, he crashes and he crashes hard <laughs> when he realizes what his reality actually was. Yeah, uh, I, I don't disagree with any of that. It's it's just, again, anytime you put, you know, Luke wandering the streets looking for his junky girlfriend who has, you know, slipped the coop, um, that stuff, I was just like, oh, this is, this is so hard. That he's trying to save. Right. Uh, he, 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 trying to save someone the way that Nell saved him. You know? Right. Uh, just so heartbreaking. And I... 
you know, I did love that stuff too. It's just that for me, being the horrible cynic skeptic prick that I am about everything, <laughs> you put me you put me in that situation of a haunted house. Like if I'm really in that situation, I'm Steven the entire time. Where I'm just like, it's mental illness, it's this, it's that, it's just settling, it's creaking of the house, everything's going to be fine, you're overreacting, it's just hysteria, darling, it's just hysteria, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I. <laughs> Alright, so I'm going to posit the, uh, I'll tell you, let me try to figure out how I want to phrase this. So, I would posit that the finest moments in this miniseries come at the dead center of it in episodes five and six episode five is entitled the bentneck lady it is the story mm-hmm. of nell and uh we we finally get a look at what happened to her in the house when she returns and in this whole story uh for some reason you have decided to push on even though you haven't seen the series the uh and and don't know what the fuck we're talking about nell is the youngest daughter she is the twin of luke who has been having night terrors uh for a large portion of her life ever since living in hill house uh which her family bought with the intention of buying renovating and flipping but of course they move in and weird shit happens and you know scary stuff abounds and they end up fleeing the house all amityville horror like only the the mother Olivia has at least ostensibly committed suicide in the house, and uh, this has shattered the family in a number of ways. The kids go off to live with their aunt, while the father um, is, is sort of estranged. The way he puts it, which I think is also kind of heartbreaking, is I have spent my life with my back to the door, trying to keep the monsters on the other side. Um, and, and trying to protect his family from what really happened within the walls of, of Hill house, uh, or at least his perception of that. I also love the line that he says where he spent so much time with his arms, holding the door back. They didn't have time for his arms for his children anymore. Yeah. Yeah. To embrace them. And it, that just, oh my gosh, man, I, that broke me. I just was like, I want to hug you, Timothy. (laughs) I want to hug you, man. It is a surprisingly emotional story. Like it doesn't skimp on the scares and we'll get to that here in a minute, but there are a handful of moments when watching this, uh, this mini series where I was at the brink of tears and absolutely. And if you were just a little more human, Bo, you would have actually been crying. You're, you're probably right. I was too busy being being scared. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but there was one in particular that was kind of a weird blend of both uh, uh, of horror and, and, and really bitter emotion. And it's at the end of uh, the twin thing, the fourth episode, which is about Luke. And the episode, I think it ends on this note, but... It's when we learn that his habit of counting to seven is his way to ward himself from the horrors within Hill House. And it's he counts for one member or for each member of the family. And there's a great scene where young Luke is telling his sister, Nell, like sometimes you have to do it for a long, long time. And he constantly sees this floating man. Oh my god, that Which, episode. Oh, it's <laughs> fucking scary. And but he sees this this dude with a bowler hat with his back to Luke even out in the world as an adult. And 
the episode, I believe, ends with him counting to seven, and the man with the bowler hat is just behind. And you realize, and it, you know, of course, this is a metaphor for the addiction and and so forth that he's dealing with. Um, but it's really effective. It was one of those things that's both horrific and heartbreaking at the same time. Something that this show does surprisingly well, maybe better than anything I've ever seen. Um, but to get to the horror part of this, episodes five and six. Uh, episode five is the Bitneck Lady. Episode six is entitled Two Storms." I would include episode four in there too yeah the twin thing is pretty oh man that with the floating man mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's that's fucking terrifying four through six yeah so those that's the evil heart of hill house (laughs) that trio of episodes has some of the most terrifying imagery i've seen (laughs) just in anything in a while and particularly the two storms episode that episode six which Mm -hmm is done with a series of hidden edits so that it seems like one long shot for much of the runtime of the opening of that episode where um, Nell has gone missing and everyone in the family is looking for her. And it is one of the most artfully done pieces of not just television cinema, just cinema. Yeah. um, Where the tension is rising and rising and rising. And then finally Nell appears and they're like, where are you? And she was like, I was here all along and none of you could see me, which is horrifying in its own right. And she was screaming their names. She was screaming at them. She was stomping. She was doing everything she could for them to be able to see her and no one could see her. Yeah. And, and, and of course the yeah. bent neck lady, the reveal of that is that this bent neck lady, which is this ghost with this, you know, crooked head, clearly broken neck, um, that has been herself. Right. That has haunted Nell all her life was her trying to warn her. I always thought that it was like a, I thought it was like a vision of her future because each of the family has their own bit of sort of like psychic powers. At least the children do that was inherited through the mom. And I thought it was like a vision of her inevitable sort of future, not necessarily a warning. It was just something that she wasn't going to escape it, but it was a warning to let her know that it was going to happen. Yeah, perhaps so. I just took that like when she when she falls and snaps her neck and you see that, you know, her essentially descending into all these moments in time for for me, that was like this echo of her sorrow and rage of just like don't let this happen sort of thing. But that again that's just a personal read on it. It doesn't matter because just it's just fucking terrible no matter how you slice it that she well, yeah, has and, she is her own ghost. Well, and that horrible moment where she realizes that she is the cause of her own torment the whole way through it is so metaphorically beautiful because if we can step back from our own minds, I mean, we are our own worst enemies for most of the things that we suffer from, whether you're talking mental illness or just someone making their own shitty life choices and seeing the stuff that affected Nell through her whole entire life, this thing that haunted her to have it turn out to be herself and the cause of her own inevitable death the whole way through it. It just breaks your heart because she goes back and she realizes and has to also relive all of the most horrible moments of her life, seeing this stuff and like you're horrified and you want to cry and you just want this to end for her the whole time they keep doing that sequence. Right. I just I was wrecked at the end of that episode. Like my wife and I were both like let's 
take a break now. Yeah. No. I mean, just when her husband died that episode, the Hmm. way he died, like, and her reaction was gut-wrenching. Yeah. I mean, just, you're like, whoa. I think it's, uh, it might be in this series of episodes, the four, five, six run. Um, But there is a vision that, uh, or it might even be in the eulogy episode, but someone has a vision of Nell and it's her trying to scream and she has to pry her own glued mouth open. She has to cut the wire that's holding her jaw shut. She actually reaches for scissors and cuts the wire. That's That's horrific. Oh my God. Yeah. You guys. Um, so, but I mentioned the, the, this run of just terrifying episodes to point out that, yes, we, we started talking about how this is kind of a family drama and there's all these stories of like addiction and the impact of the mother suicide on the family and the fact that they're estranged from their father. And it's, you know, all these broken relationships that exist within this large family. But let's talk about how fucking scary this show is, you guys. Um, Because those three episodes, I would put up against just about any horror film and say, like, you show me something that is as just out and out creepy as this stuff. But uh, I wanted to bring this around to just a quick discussion of what what hit you guys? What was the scariest shit that you guys ran into in this in this miniseries? Well, we already touched on it with the reveal of Nell being her own ghost. That that still sticks with me. I can't the hor- the horror of that of just having to relive all of those horrible moments at the point of your actual death, and then what causes her death being her own mother's ghost tricking her into it just because her mother was trying to preserve her yeah. as this beautiful innocent child, and the dynamic that has to go with that, the the ploys at the mental illness and everything. It just was pushing all the buttons of all the fears that I personally have of the loss of control over my own faculties and what that would all entail. And then also just kind of realizing that I'm the cause of all my problems all along. It just left me just so hollow and and just ripped to shreds. That was terrifying. Yeah. 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 That'll do it. Vanessa, (laughs) anything stick out to you as far as. Hey, this will probably stick with me uh, for a while, if not the rest of my life. I'm going to go with the floating man because one, okay, it starts with with Luke as a child hearing down the halls of Hill House like you have in the 1963 The Haunting, like a cane banging on all the doors and there's an echo. And He can't figure it out, but this is a different explanation than that. But I like that little nod to that. And we see this figure haunted Luke as a child in that house. And yes, it's a metaphor for his addictions and how it follows him. But just the fact that you don't see a lot of him and that way he finally sneaks up on Luke and the fact that his back is to Luke's back yeah <laughs> and he gets nearer and nearer there is something so unsettling about that like <laughs> he's following Luke 
but he's essentially walking or flowing backwards. And it's just this, it's not a realistic, it doesn't look like a real person. You know, it's a caricature. It's more of a slender man kind of inspiration. Yeah. But (sighs) it's just something is so unsettling about the movements well, the fact that the fact it, that he floats and still has to use the cane to move himself backwards or yes. forwards is horrifying. That's exactly right? what I was going to say of him using oh, the cane to push himself along the hallway is yeah. one of Ugh. the just out and out creepiest things I've ever seen. Right, right. Well, and when he's when he actually the reveal of his face because most of it you just see the silhouetted outline of him and exactly the completely unnatural movement of him kind of hovering and floating. And the fact that he's cognizant of his surroundings where he ducks his head, but doesn't mm-hmm. bother floating downward. He continues to be the same height by floating around. And then the only time you see him tilt down and duck is when the kid makes a noise and he looks under the bed. And that's when like Luke is basically marked by this ghost. And this ghost is like, well, you had my hat, did you? Well, right. now you're mine. And that that is just that that inevitability, that that permanence of this thing has marked you and you're, you're his now is just horrible. Yeah. That's some Juan shit. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh no, you're the one who took my hat and Oh yeah. You're on my list. Yeah. <laughs> it's like well, the grin he gives him when he sees him because he doesn't do anything. He just looks at him and grins and goes, you're mine now is how it, that grin looks like to me. Yeah. Exactly. Let, let me think of that is now haunting me. Thanks, Vanessa. I may have to change mine. <laughs> In the last episode, where you see much more a close up of the face, it feels like an entirely different creature. Yeah. It's another kind of creepy. <laughs> I had to look over my shoulder, and there's like three feet of wall space there. What's going to be there? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm getting chills up my back, and I'm an atheist skeptic prick. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. <laughs> right? So I'm going down. Like I, I was watching Hill House, and I get to uh, the the Floaty Man Luke episode. I was like, and after it was over, I was like, all right, I got to take a fucking second here and just regroup before I continue well, on. It's a gut wrenching episode too. That's yeah. what's crazy because you're already in that vulnerable emotional state and then all of a sudden it's like the house yeah that's when it injects the horror and the terror right it, yeah wait still your vault and we'll get to something else here in a second but so okay. i'm going down uh i'm going down the steps of the house uh into the basement which is unfinished and <laughs> dark of course. So to, to swap some clothes out uh, in the washer and dryer, which are in the garage. And as I'm going down the steps, I start hearing this thumping sound immediately beside me. That's, oh, that sounds like something descending the steps at the same time and at the same pace I am. <laughs> and so I hit the lights real quick because I was like, the fuck? And... It turns out what I had done is because my uh, the basement was originally kind of infested with crickets and stuff, uh, although that has since seemed to be less of a problem, because I have this can of bug killer 
that I kept at the top of the steps and I hit it without realizing it. So the can was rolling down the the steps at the same time I was walking down the steps. And that was the thumping sound. But it, it could not have been any more perfect. And it was also one of those moments where I appreciated the fact that the show had gotten in under my skin enough mm-hmm. that I, that it creeped me out that I was open to being scared by my own shadow for all intents and purposes. Well, that's the part of being a horror fan that makes us drawn to this type of material. And the older we get and the more desensitized to this kind of stuff we get from watching all of it, the less effective it actually is. And I think what Flanagan and the crew of this series has done so well is they use a mechanism that we can all understand as shared grief, you know, familial loss, particularly tragic loss and, you know, losing someone to a mental illness or a sadness or a depression or something along those lines. We've all experienced something like that. And so we all have that. And they use that empathy against us because when we start identifying and feeling towards these characters in their own specific episodes and we start seeing how they're haunted, not only by their past and the things that have happened to them and also the bad choices that they made that led them to where they are, but the fact that all of this stems from this house and we're drawn into the ghosts and their experiences with us with that. So we're essentially them more so than we would be with our typical horror characters that we can't identify with because we are already feeling for them by the time the haunting stuff hits in the middle of the series way more than we really should be. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that kind of leads to the the scare for me that I will probably never forget. Um, although the can of raid on the stairs is pretty fucking good. <laughs> uh, it, well, I was a, that's just a beautiful story. I'm so glad you shared that because that's where I love to live, Bo. Where you're so terrified of your own fucking shadow just walking away from your entertainment. That's perfect. Well, and like you said, it, uh, just being a fan of horror films for as long as I have been, it's tough for a, a, a show or movie to get me to that place. You know, because I'm always chasing the dragon, looking for that next fix that's going <laughs> to be as scary as like seeing Alien when I was five or something. Oh yeah, that's I my entire podcast is about that pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yep. C- Cinema Psyops mm-hmm. right here on Legionpodcast.com. Um <laughs> not above it. But <laughs> the the thing that really got me as I was watching this series is there is a jump scare that happens in I think it's episode eight. Um is that the same one that got me? I'm sure it is because it got fucking everybody. It's it it's surely There's only one. <laughs> it's Shirley and Theo in yes. the car on the way to Hill House after they have learned that Luke is headed back there. Uh, My towards wife the the launched her phone at the TV when that hit, <laughs> and she, she was like, "What the fuck?" and threw her phone. <laughs> it's, but it's a fairly extended scene of. Theo and Shirley arguing and there is no setup for this jump scare. Just an FYI. It is just, we we, like these characters have kind of been at each other's throats and they're really having it out. And all of a sudden Nell pops out from the back seat and just screams. Corpse Nell Nell too. Yeah. Yeah. Corpsey Nell. Yeah. Looking absolutely beautiful like that. And I, and I just like you like them. (laughs) I, and I made this sound. 
<laughs> Which I never do. I do not gasp as a rule. <laughs> I gasped too. And as I said, Bo, my wife launched her phone at the TV and was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And, <laughs> and then I immediately laughed because I was like, holy shit, Flanagan. You got me yep. good. Yeah, that's what I did. Oh. It was, I backed it up just so I could see it again, and my wife was pissed at me for that because I was like, that was so good! It, <laughs> it is one of the most well-crafted jump scares. It, uh, like, it's up there with the Exorcist 3 jump scare, like, which is the thing about the Exorcist 3. Mm-hmm. Oh, the crawling across the ceiling kind of thing? Spoiler alert. I was thinking of the nun with the scissors or the shears. Oh, or Jesus, yeah, that, oh, yeah, that one's even bigger. You're right, I'm oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of just like this came out of the blue, it is not cheap because it is exactly, you know, to your point of like the house is waiting for them to get to the point of, of highest anxiety and then it twists the knife. And that's sort of what Flanagan does is in the middle of the scene that's already engaging. It's not like a, a throwaway scene at all. And in fact, that jump scare leads to the moment between Theo and Shirley that they needed as sisters where they can finally be honest with one another. And Theo also reveals this kind of deeper dread based horror of she has the ability to uh, read people and, and to uh, ascertain things by touching people or objects, which is why she always wears gloves kind of like uh, um, the X-Man. And Rogue. yes, <laughs> and so sh- what? But she is telling Shirley after this jump scare that took a, a, a solid year and a half off my life <laughs> that after she touched Nell, she couldn't feel anything anymore. And Nell that, in the morgue, right? Yeah, that like when once her body was brought in, that Theo wanted to touch her to try to understand what had happened to her, and that she was overcome and, and had to suffer through for uh, a period of time following uh, that this absence of any emotion or hope or anything. It was just this numbness to everything around her. And that this encounter she had with Shirley's husband was, um, which Shirley read as her coming on to, uh, uh, you know, that Theo was coming on to her husband and she was like, no, that's not what it was. It was just, I needed, uh, like, the lights had gone out. And not only was I emotionally numb to the world, suddenly I was in the dark, too. And I thought, well, this is what death is like. Where you can't see anything, you can't feel anything. You just exist in this state of pure nothingness. And it's horrifying. And so when the lights came on and I grabbed him. I, and you walked in, I felt shame, and I was so glad that I could feel that shame again. And it's such a moving moment, and such, you know, it's a horrifying idea to be completely right. removed from emotion and things like that. And it, the whole thing works so well, but it starts with a jump scare that just about made me shit my pants. And that now, never did- happens to me. Do you feel that Nell jumping up like she did was the house trying to collect them as well? Because I read that as Nell's spirit trying to get them to reconcile yeah. by any means necessary. And she was so desperate to communicate with them that she used whatever energy she may have had left to just get that one scream at them just to try and get them to stop. And 
like maybe we could have seen it from her perspective as a ghost and she'd be screaming at them for the entirety of the ride without them to be able to hear her. And then somehow she forced her way through into the living realm or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Shut the fuck up. Kind of. Yeah. Like, <laughs> will you guys knock it off? There's more important shit out there that you need to fix. Exactly. And, and also, exactly. if you don't go in together, like emotionally together, the house is going to pick you apart. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you can't carry this shit into the house with you because that's exactly what it's going to feed on and what it's going to twist to its own needs, you know? Um, which I guess, all right, which kind of brings me to the end, which is the part of the miniseries that I think I liked least is the last episode where we Agreed. actually, where we actually do go into the house and it seemed like we take this kind of turn from the house being this monstrosity that does take everything that you desire. Like in the case of Olivia, the Carla Gugino character, that it is, it has taken her love of her children and her desire to keep them safe and perverted it into a thing where she is going to try to kill her children in an effort to preserve them forever within the house. And sort of by the end of the episode, it's like, so the house is a place where ghosts can just hang out together forever? That doesn't seem so bad. And I think it was, I, I needed the house to still be a villain by the end of, of the miniseries. And I, and I don't think it is, you know? I it, actually, I, I, I interpreted it sort of like the Jacob's Ladder description that Donnie Aiello gives to Tim Robbins' character, where he's like, <laughs> As you're laying there and you're dying, if you're terrified of dying, you're going to see demons ripping your life away. But if you are at peace and you are accepting of your fate, you're going to see what you need to see to usher you into whatever afterlife or the end of your end of your day. So I looked at it like in in the in the house at the time that Carla Gugino's character was there and the way that she was being affected her interpretation of what the house was trying to offer was that you guys can stay here forever as ghosts and be fine. She perverted it in her own mind due to her own mental illness. And the reason that, that uh, the father was able to use what he used whenever he was ghostified or what have you as part of the deal to stay there with her so that she wouldn't have to be alone. A lot of that has to do with him making the deal with the, the caretakers and the loss of their child so that the house can remain just so they can have their child and be with their child. I think that act of kindness that he does almost redeems the house in a way, but there's still that evil element that's there. There's it's both parts of it. It's if you're there and you are able to be manipulated, then the darker aspects of the house, the madness that is contained with uh, the, the bowler hat man and his wife, who is the redheaded flapper I mean, she, Carla Gugino's character succumbed to every little torment and tease that that woman had to offer. And that's why she went the dark path. But Timothy Hutton's character and, you know, the, the family that was the, the caretakers, they ended up not succumbing to that side of the darkness. They ended up, you know, like their daughter died there. So they, they kept her spirit. They tended the house because of love for their family. And so did Timothy Hutton's character in his final decision. So that's how I took it is they weren't seeing demons rip their life away. He was seeing himself give up his life to save his remaining living children. And that he's passing that on to his son saying that it's now your turn to take care of your family. 
take care of this house and the spirits that are within. And it has this very sweet and saccharine ending. I can see where that would feel like cheated and cheap. But at the same time, that's kind of how life is, though. We we find a way to live. We find a way to adjust and heal given the right amount of time. And I feel like the decisions that Timothy Hutton's character made started the process of the ghosts that weren't mean or, or, or cruel or trying to hurt people into coming out and not hiding from the ones that were and pushing the evil aside. And it kind of created a coup back in that decision. It had been going on for all this time. And the family's fate was kind of the ultimate decision for the house as well. That's just how I read it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can follow that logic. I just don't like it. Uh, that's, like that's fine, you right. don't have to. I but, mean, that's. I'm just saying why I enjoyed it and I was okay with that ending. But I can totally see where that would not be satisfying for other people. Sure, and you know, and I'm complaining about 20 minutes of 10 hours that I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed. So I'm not giving the the miniseries too hard a time about it. But Vanessa, what did, what did you uh, make of the ending? It was far too saccharine and sweet for me. I I definitely agree with you that the house still needed to be a villain to some extent. I don't know what would have been the best way to do it, but just something felt a little too happy. Yeah. Yeah. And you could have had a certain amount of the people make it through, but not everyone. I don't know. (laughs) Have the house be burned down. It didn't feel evil at that point. And the house obviously had an evil. It just feels like you guys' biggest issue is that the thing just ended. You just didn't want it to end. Right. <laughs> you just wanted it to well, keep eating. <laughs> and, and Flanagan himself uh, said, look, the, the questions are always better than the answers. And, th- right, the show has to end. And it's sort of, uh, to quote another director, um, Frank Darabont, when he was talking about making The Mist, and someone telling him, like, well... You know, we're, we'll give you $10 million to make this movie right now if you can change the ending. And he said, well, I've been thinking about this ending for 13 years. If you've got a better one, let me hear it. And 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 so, right, it's just one of those things where I, I think the resolution is a little too neat and clean. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm even willing to let all the kids out. And, and even the... <laughs> <laughs> I want more death. Sorry. <laughs> and even the scenes or with... Or destruction of some sort. Yeah, I mean, I almost wish it had been the Russ Tamblin ending of this house should be burned to the ground and, and the earth should be sewn with salt. salt. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which is... Which, can I interrupt for a second? If we're talking about Russ, Russ Tamblin, Tamblin, yes. Has uh, a cameo in here as you. I love that. As Dr. Yeah. Jacoby, essentially. Well, but his name <laughs> is Dr. Montague. Yeah. Minus the red and blue glasses. I was hoping yeah. that like maybe he would just have them somewhere on a shelf. I was just really looking and hoping. Yeah. yeah. I, I, as I was watching uh, the original Haunting today and seeing, you know, Russ Hamblin back in 63. 63, yeah. yeah all, all I can think is, you know, it's five o'clock. Do you know where your freedom is? <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. I mean, he's such a treasure. I I loved him in the '63 version. I, I'm glad that he popped up in the miniseries. And it, like, there's a lot of reverence that Flanagan clearly has for this material, even though he's made it so much his own. This is definitely Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. But uh, but yeah, aside from the ending being a little too, a little too neat, a little too upbeat 
for the rest of the, I mean, the whole series is so gruesomely dreary in a way that I really appreciate um, <laughs> where you're just seeing a family shattered apart. And so at the end when they're like, no, 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 we've got to, we've got to leave on a bit of an up note, I suppose. And even the scene with Shirley talking to her husband, Kevin, and I really like the line again, this feels so Stephen King to me, but of her saying, I need you to love me really hard for the next few minutes while I tell you about this thing. And like that stuff, I was like, I like all of this. The only thing I don't like is like, for example, the, uh, the Dudleys bringing, or, you know, Mrs. Dudley coming to die in Hill house so she can be with Abigail and her child, her other child that they lost. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. The other, the other kid that the house murdered, from from within her. And that's the part of it I can't reconcile is like, oh, the house can kill an unborn baby, but also reunite them. I just I, like that stuff just feels a little too discordant for me personally. But again, I'm complaining about such a minor fraction. I'm talking like half of an episode. So roughly what would that be? 5% uh, a, a, a 20th of the haunting of Hill house. I have a problem with and the other 1920s, I think is fucking amazing. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Do you guys have any, any final thoughts here on, on this 10 hour mega series of, uh, of horror entertainment? Just talking about it now makes me want to go watch it all again, all 10 hours of it all in a row, all straight with yeah. only a slight break after the, uh, bent neck lady episode to gather myself and stop bawling into my pillow (laughs) yeah i've thought about that too like when when am i gonna watch this again probably sooner rather than later for sure um vanessa what do you think i think i need a little bit of time to digest it It it's probably going to be another couple months or so maybe more before i watch it again but i will watch it again i did enjoy it but i don't I don't think I enjoyed it maybe as much as you guys. Just, I still, I don't know. There's still part of me that's like, I really wanted. (laughs) I really wanted (laughs) The Haunting of Hill House. Sure. Someday you will get a fully faithful adaptation that will make you happy, Vanessa. I believe in that. Talking Talking about saccharine and happy endings for everyone right there. Um, yeah. Well, but, but that already but, exists. That's the 1963 The Haunting. <laughs> well, it's not exactly, you know, the complete, but still, I'd love to see it as a series. Yeah. Um, all right. Because well, like, I think with, you know, I think with this series, part of me would have liked to have seen more about what went on with the house before they were there. Yeah. I wanted to see a little bit more of that. Right. Well, I mean, that's my only, that's my only real, I think, complaint. Because next year from Netflix, the prequel. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Which I'd be totally fine with. Or you do it as as a prequel slash sequel where you have a group of investigators in the house and, and then do the prequel stuff of here's what happened prior to the cranes owning it. And, and here's an investigation that also involves some of the ghosts like Nell and Olivia and, and, uh, and you put Hugh. you put Russ Tamlin in the uh, Richard, uh, what's his name, <laughs> the, the older oh, doctor's yeah. role. Uh, Mark Doctor Montague. 
Yeah, oh. yeah. You... No, in the book, he's Dr. Montague. In the original <laughs> movie, he was Mark Way. Yeah, right. You put him in that role, though. Like, you have him be the older guy so that you have the connection to the 63 version that you had, where, like, his his fascination with Nell's case, which I'm still not even convinced that Montague was even a real psychiatrist. I feel like that was more ghost fucking with her because he was a terrible psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he... he... He seemed like he was, well, a, but he also he didn't know he was dealing. Yeah, and doesn't know he's dealing with somebody who's haunted as fuck. You know. Well, and then and this guy, yeah, as a psychologist, I think turning that actually, he could still play the same Doctor Montague character and just be a continuation him. And right, then he brings people back in there. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm done ah. for that. Ah, there's another idea. <laughs> See, I'm liking this more and more. Um, okay, so we're going to end this conversation by, first of all, me saying thanks for taking some time out to uh, take part in this bonus episode. On the back end of this will be other movies I've been watching, but none of them have been 10-hour miniseries. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need you guys around to talk about, you know, who's watching Oliver or whatever the fuck that movie was. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but we will end... Uh, not only with the thanks for uh, for your time, but because this is Devour the Podcast, we will rate this miniseries uh, on a scale of one to five, one being lowest, five being highest. Uh, no half stars are allowed because we are not monsters, unlike the residents of Hill House. I thought uh, it was quarter stars. Quarter stars. Oh, quarter stars allowed. are not allowed. That's right. Half Except stars. that one episode where you let me do it. Yeah. Well, and it, I'm a little kind bit of, of a monster. It's okay. We know. It kind of averaged that way anyway so uh vanessa one to five stars uh what do you rate the the haunting of hill house i give this a four and a half all right seems low no 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 i'm kidding it's, no, <laughs> it's because it's just because of my attachment to the source material sure sure um, but it's still it's still excellent and i would highly recommend it uh court what about you sir I would have given it a 4.75, but that would therefore make me a monster on this show. So I'm just going to round it up. It's a full five for me. I had no complaints about it other than it fucking ended. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, there should be more of it. Uh, yeah, that happens. I'm Yeah, I'm, I'm in the, the same boat. I'm going to give this four and a half stars only because I, I the ending left a little bit for me uh, to be desired. But all that said, I think it, it's some kind of achievement not just for mike flanagan who has proven once more that he is just one of the finest living horror directors exactly but also for netflix it's an amazing achievement for that network it's it's just an amazing achievement for horror series for horror television and if you haven't seen the haunting of hill house this is one of those few times i would say if you're not a subscriber to netflix first off what the fuck Second of all, uh, then you should do that at least until you watch The Haunting of Hill House, and then you can cancel it again and go about your life. Um, yeah, get a free trial and put in the 10 hours. Right. Done and done. You know, while you're there, check out Making a Murder. That's pretty dope, too. Um, and other Flanagan stuff that's available on there that isn't available anywhere else. Just oh, search yeah. the guy's name and look it all up. Yeah, Before I Wake is something that's tough to find or was until Netflix picked it up. So, um yeah. Uh, so thanks again, guys. I really appreciate uh, you hanging out and talking uh, Haunting of Hill House with me. And now on with more reviews. 
It's just you and I again, faithful listeners. So let's talk about uh, what else I've been watching. Um, so mentioned this briefly on the last episode of Devour the Podcast, but it, it's worth a note here. Uh, I watched again um, the House on Haunted Hill, the uh, 1999 version. So here's a listen to that trailer real quick. been invited to a party if they can stay up till dawn they'll win one million dollars each the only catch is that they'll have to live through the night let the games begin So House on Haunted Hill, uh, the 99 uh, version of the, of the film, is uh, directed by William Malone of Parasomnia and Fear.com. Fame or infamy, depending on how you feel about it. Uh, with Jeffrey Rush as Stephen Price and Famke Jansen um, as Evelyn Price. Tay Diggs as Eddie. Peter Gallagher as Blackburn. Chris Kattan as Pritchett. Allie Larder as Sarah. Bridget Wilson, uh, now Bridget Wilson Sampras as Melissa Marr, and uh, Jeffrey Combs as Dr. Vanicott. Uh, also, a cameo by Lisa Loeb uh, as the reporter in the early goings of that movie, which was kind of fun and strange. At any rate, uh, I so, yes, I like this movie more than I probably should. I can certainly make the case for this movie not being great. The effects are dated, although I, I think they still work fairly well, uh, even though it's some early CGI that is meh, at times. Um, but I really like uh, Jeffrey, or I'm sorry, Jeffrey uh, Rush as Stephen Price in this a ton. I think uh, Famke Jansen is also quite good, and their interplay with one another I, I think is super fun as a couple that is you know, a half step away from murdering, uh, each other. 
And and I also like the fact, uh, I mentioned this on Devour, like right off the bat, they use the Hulk co- coaster from Universal Studios, and I think that's kind of dumb and fun. Um, yeah, I, I just, there's a ton about it that I, I like. I think it's got great atmosphere. Chris Kattan doesn't annoy me in this movie as he often does in other films. Um, you know, again, nothing personal against Chris Kattan, just, you know, whatever. I am always intrigued by the, the house on Haunted Hill. I, I find it eminently watchable. And even though some of the dialogue isn't great and the characters are really cookie cutter, um, and even the scares now are, are just... Boy, as late '90s, early 2000 as as they come, uh, right down to the editing and choice of music and all that stuff, it's dated for sure. But again, of you know this kind of movie, this sort of you know popcorn haunted house thrill ride of a film, I think it works pretty well. I think that you know the cast goes a long way to making a movie that shouldn't work as well as it does uh, work much better. And uh, and I kind of dig it. So House on Haunted Hill uh, is kind of a thumbs up for me. If you've never seen it, I would uh, I would recommend it. Um, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna give it three and a half stars. It is not a four star movie. Uh, I feel that down to my bones. And yet I, I I like I said I would recommend it. I I think if you've never seen it, it's worth a look and it's got some fun creepy stuff in it. So that is House on Haunted Hill. Uh, next up, let's talk about the movie Terrified, which premiered recently on uh, on Shutter. Um, this is also a foreign film, so I, you know, buckle in. Here's the trailer for that in a language that you probably don't understand. Okay, so that's the trailer for Terrified from 2017. The uh, foreign language title is Aterrados, which I like. It uh, is written and directed by Damien Arunia uh, and stars Ariel Chavaria, Maximiliano Guione, Norberto Gonzalo, Hugo Halbrich, George Lewis... Finally, a name I can pronounce without feeling too awkward about it. At any rate, it's uh, the synopsis goes, When strange events occur in a neighborhood in Buenos Aires, a doctor specializing in the paranormal, her colleague, and an ex-police officer decide to investigate further. Um, this is one of a, a pair of Shutter exclusives, uh, starting with Satan's Slaves, which I talked about in the last bonus episode, uh, talking about this stuff. That I find really, really good. Um, I think that Terrified... Okay, so 
the gist of the movie is some weird shit's happening in this neighborhood. Some police get involved. It turns out that uh, this has to do with kind of alternate dimensions and whatnot. I I highly, highly recommend you see this movie for sure. I think it's a great horror film uh, in the sense that there is just a lot of horror shit that is going on. Um, I don't know that the plot hangs together super well, or at least the construction of it, I don't think is is the most you know, coherent, uh, I have seen. And yet I really, really like it. Um, I, I think it is more of a funhouse movie where it kind of doesn't matter what's going on in terms of the narrative. It's just a fun flick to watch and let sort of happen to you. And there's some really creepy visuals in it. There's a dead kid that is just absolutely horrifying. There is, uh, oh, geez, what else is, um, you know, just uh, like all kinds of just w- bizarre imagery and stuff like that. Like much like Satan's Slaves, not to keep comparing it to that film, but there is a there is something about both Satan's Slaves and Terrified where a lot of the film is is built around atmosphere and and just seeing weird shit that you would not see in another movie. And, you know, the the plot is fine enough. Like I said, I think it's really the construction because you jump around in time a little bit in, in the film. And I don't know that that's handled very deftly. And yet, I think it's really cool. Like, it's a movie that consistently gave me stuff to look at that I thought was genuinely unsettling and, and super fun. Um, I don't know that the movie scared me. But it definitely entertained me throughout. And I would say that uh, Terrified is a a four-star film. Four stars out of five for, uh, for Terrified. And I thought it was... Uh, I thought it was good. If you have Shudder, then you definitely need to check it out. Um, and if you don't have Shudder, then hey, you know, tis the season. And five bucks is going to get you this and Satan's Slaves for a month. And those are both worth, you know the money if you're just going to uh you know do uh, 5 bucks for a month and watch both of those movies as well as a handful of others that are exclusive to uh that service so yeah check it out terrified 2017 directed and written by Damien Runya uh really good four stars okay uh next up on our hit list is the film drag me to hell uh the Sam Raimi joint and here is the trailer for that Mr. Jax, I was wondering if you'd made any decision regarding the assistant manager's position. It's between Stu and yourself. Stu Rubin, the new guy? Stu's someone who's not afraid to make the tough decisions. I'm perfectly capable of making the tough decisions. I'll let you know as soon as I decide, okay? Will you help me? Please. Okay. We have an elderly woman asking for an extension on her mortgage payment. We would have to throw her out of her house. We've already granted her two extensions. It's a tough decision. Your call. Another extension is out of the question. Where will I live? I'm really sorry. Never have I begged for anything. But now, I humble myself before you. I beg you. Please let go. Please let go. Security! You shame. Ah! 
Soon it will be you who comes begging to me. Someone has cursed you. Is the Lamia, the most feared of all demons. For the first three days, the spirit torments its victims. After that, it will come to take you. Take me where? To burn in hell for eternity. It's coming for me. Please listen to me. There is nothing coming for you. How do I get rid of this? I welcome. You can give the curse away. So I think Drag Me to Hell gets a little bit of a bad rap. Um, It is the 2009 horror film from Sam Raimi, written by Sam Raimi and Ivan Raimi. Uh, It stars Alison Lohman as Christine, Justin Long as Clay, her boyfriend, Lorna Raver as Mrs. Ganoush, the the, uh, cursing gypsy lady, Dilip Rao as Ram Joss, David Paymer as Mr. Jax, um, Reggie Lee is Stu, the rival in the office. At any rate, uh, yeah, I think that this is no Evil Dead. Okay, um, Drag Me to Hell is a little bit sillier. Is it? Maybe. I don't know because you know Evil Dead certainly has plenty of silliness uh, to go around. Uh, Here, let's do the synopsis real quick, which is a lone officer who evicts an old woman from her home, finds herself the recipient of a supernatural curse. Desperate, she turns to a seer to try and save her soul, while evil forces work to push her to a breaking point. Um, So I think Drag Me to Hell mostly works. I think that the idea of this curse following Alison Lohman, and there's a lot of creepy shadow work and stuff like that, I think all of that is really good. Um, I think the excess of bugs vomited onto Allison Lohman is very funny. Um, you know, there's a lot of Sam Raimi in this movie. And Sam Raimi hasn't done a horror movie like this since Evil Dead or Army of Darkness. And hasn't didn't do one uh, prior to this for a while. And hasn't done one in about the past decade that has... Uh, this kind of feel to it, which is just this sort of campy horror quality. There's a, there's a bit of a 50s-esque vibe to the whole thing. And, you know, it's got some Raimi camera work. Uh, I, I would say that the biggest problems with it are kind of twofold. One is that the CGI employed in the film does not hold up uh, very well. It tends to be a little dodgy, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I would say that the CGI aside, the practical effects are still really fun. And there's, there's some, uh, good times to be had in some of that, that practical stuff. The, um, the other problem that I really have is I don't like the fact that this curse seems to be a little, not vague. It's just it doesn't necessarily seem entirely deserving. And I feel like it need, I feel like Alison Lohman's character needs to be a little bit shittier a person, uh, for this to come off completely and in a way that I really like, but you know, that's really being a little nitpicky with uh, a movie that, you know, has 
Allison Loman firing staples at a, a gypsy lady's face and whatnot in a way that I find pretty funny. Um, and I do like the end of the movie. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen Drag Me to Hell, but I think the ending is, uh, is, is certainly fun, um, if not entirely deserved, uh, as, as I've mentioned. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, there are things about it, like, the, there's a scene where they're uh, trying to call upon this demon that is stalking Allison Loman. That is the most Evil Dead 2 thing that Raimi has done in, in you know, since Evil Dead 2. Uh, or Army of Darkness, I suppose. And it, it's almost worth watching Drag Me to Hell for a little bit of nostalgia, strangely. Of, of feeling like, hey, this is kind of... This harkens back to a time when I loved what Sam Raimi was producing as a filmmaker, and I'm willing to take a lesser example of that because Sam Raimi doing horror that's not quite as good as Evil Dead is still Sam Raimi I'm go- going to enjoy. And and that's how I felt about Drag Me to Hell. I, I enjoyed the the movie. I don't think it's great, but I have a good time with it. And, and so uh, I'm going to... Give Drag Me to Hell three and a half stars uh, as uh, as a bit of nostalgia as much as anything. And uh, I, I had a good time with it. So, Drag Me to Hell. Uh, drag yourself to the movies to see Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> eh. uh, let's talk about another movie. Um, the Haunting, 1963. We talked about The Haunting of Hill House to uh, some extent in the upfront on this. So let's talk about uh, the movie, what uh, is considered by many a classic. And uh, here's the trailer for the original 1963, The Haunting. God, it knows I'm here. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. I'm trying to prepare you. My name's Marquay, Dr. Marquay, a scientist interested in the supernatural. The unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor, Nell, who could look back into the past, and Theo, something of a witch who could see into the future. This is Luke. Who didn't believe in anything until evil, patient and waiting, made him change his mind. Stop it! God. God. Whose hand was I holding? How many of us take seriously the things we cannot or do not want to understand? Simply because we are afraid. Elena, you're called! Did you hear me calling? This house. You have to watch it every minute. The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, brilliant producer of West Side Story. The stars consist of a cross-section of top talent in the world of entertainment. Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. 
So the haunting uh, is synopsized thusly. A scientist doing research on the paranormal invites two women to a haunted mansion. One of the participants soon starts losing her mind. This is uh, directed by Robert Wise, who did movies like The Sound of Music and, you know, Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, and The West Side Story. Uh, it is written by Nelson Gidding, based on the Shirley Nax- Jackson novel, of course. And uh, Gidding also um, wrote... Uh, the Andromeda Strain and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and The Mummy Lives, <laughs> you know. But this is really his masterpiece for sure. But I, you know, this so much of this is about the direction. Robert Wise is is kind of the star of the film. But other stars include Julie Harris as Eleanor Lance, Claire Bloom as Theodora, Richard Johnson as Doctor John Markaway, uh, and Russ Tamblin. Uh, Dr. Jacoby himself as Luke Sanderson and Faye Compton as Mrs. Sanderson, uh, his mom. And at any rate, uh, what can you say about The Haunting? Um, It truly is a masterpiece. There is no getting around it. It is a movie that certainly begs the question of, hey, is the supernatural shit that we are seeing really happening or is it all in Eleanor's mind? Um, and I think that either answer is equally satisfying, which is tough to pull off. It is a movie, uh, certainly of its time, you know, if, if you're one of those people that just ain't going to enjoy a, uh, a movie that is black and white and et cetera, et cetera, you know, like you, you can't get behind a movie that doesn't look and, and move the way that modern films do. And it's going to be kind of tough to, to talk you out of that. Um, but that said, I think that this is a, a super strong film and is one of those movies that when I watch it, there's just a, an atmosphere about it. Uh, some of Robert Wise's uh, cinematography in the film is just outstanding. And, and, all of it contributes to this this sense that the house is at wrong angles and that there is something inherently, you know, as the film posits, something inherently bad uh, about the house in a way that I, I really, really enjoy. Um, I think it's just terrific. Uh, I think the performances are really good. Something that we talked about in the upfront with Vanessa is there is a representation of a, of a, a gay woman in the film that is, you know, it's subtext that she is not, you know, announcing that she is gay, but it certainly feels that way. And it's when you watch the movie with even that in mind, there is no question to, to me that that is what this character is and who she is. And I just love it all. You know, I think that the perma smile on Dr. Markway's face is really funny. I think Claire Bloom as Theodora is is terrific as sort of the worldly uh, woman who, in many ways, is a foil to uh, Julie Harris's Eleanor, who has been traumatized by spending her life in service to her mother, who was clearly not a great person. Um, yeah, it just all works, you know? The atmosphere is great. The characters are great. There are some uh, genuinely good scares. I mean, you're not going to see anything in this movie. I'll I'll warn you right now. If you haven't seen The Haunting and go into it looking for a lot of effects work and stuff, there is exactly one 
kind of special effect in the film. I guess too. There's one where you see an old uh, a child become an old woman uh, as they're telling the story of Hill House, but it kind of starts that way in a way that I, I really dig. Where you've got somebody who's like, and this is why this house is haunted as shit. And I love that stuff. I love it so much. Um, so yeah, I I can't recommend the haunting enough. If you've never seen it, I recommend it. If you have seen it, it's worth going back uh, and revisiting. Again, the only exception to that rule. Uh, being, hey, if you're just one of those people that can't enjoy a black and white kind of, you know, at this point, 55-year-old film. And if you can't, then, uh, you know, my heart goes out to you. That's a shame. It's really, really good. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give The Haunting the five stars that it deserves. It is a tremendous film. And, uh, and like I said, it's a classic. If you've never seen it, then you, you owe it to yourself. It's just one of the best horror films that ever was. Uh, in terms of haunted house movies, it's in my top five, certainly. Um, I have personal favorites, but it is hard to argue that uh, the original Haunting is... Um, the original The Haunting, I should say, is, is truly a, a landmark of, of horror cinema. So yeah, The Haunting, one of those I watch every Halloween and I'm I'm always glad when I do. Um, you know, kind of kicking back last night uh and and enjoying it was just the best. I really dug it. Um okay, so let's talk about uh one that was recommended to me on the YouTube channel for uh The Morbid Mondays recently, um which is a movie entitled Who's Watching Oliver? And it is, uh, I'll tell you what, here's the trailer, and then we'll talk about what it is. So, Who's Watching Oliver um, is synopsized thusly. Uh, who's Watching Oliver tells the story of a mentally unstable loner lost in a life forced upon him. By night, Oliver aimlessly wanders the streets and bars on what can only be described as a truly shocking and humiliating uh, killing spree. His only savior and possible way out of a life he is desperate to escape comes in the form of the beautiful Sophia with her sweet eccentricity and naivete to the danger she has put herself in. Um... It is uh, from 2017. It was directed by Richie Moore. Um, you know, several writers, uh, including the lead actor Russell Jeffrey Banks as Oliver, Sarah Malakul Lane as uh, Sophia, and Margaret Roche as Mama. And so that is sort of uh, okay. So here's what the movie is: um, Oliver has moved to. Uh, 
is it Thailand? I think is where he is. At any rate, he is. Um, he, he gets prostitutes and brings them back to his place, where he ties them up and rapes them with his mother watching via webcam. That his mother is is certainly psychotic and has raised him to essentially be a serial killer, and. So, right off the bat, like, that is uncomfortable. Um, Along the way, he starts to uh, become close with a woman named Sophia, who intimates that she had been raised uh, into a cult and and has some trauma in her life as well. It is a difficult watch because of there's a fair amount of brutality towards women in this film. And even though the movie is not shying away from any of that and doesn't doesn't try to use it to titillate, I mean it's it's clear that Oliver is a monster and so is his mother. Um, but there's also an element of like, well, you know, yes, you can certainly make the argument that the the movie knows what it is, but it's also that's what it is, you know, that's what you're seeing on screen, and that can be uh, uh, uncomfortable to say the least. So, but there is. There is a charm to the movie. Um, there is something about who's watching Oliver that, like, the relationship between Oliver and Sophia is genuinely interesting. Um, you know, there thematically, there is something to be said for a movie that is about, hey, how do you escape what your parents are trying to make of you? And at what point can you break that cycle, especially if it, if it's one of abuse? And so on that level, I enjoy who's watching Oliver. I find I still find the movie a bit problematic because of the subject matter. It's just not a, a thing I enjoy watching. And and I also don't think that you know this goes back to a line from uh, one of the greatest films of all time, um, The Girl Next Door. In which uh, Timothy Oliphant, as I think a porn guy, um, I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember the line uh, better than I remember the movie, really. Which is the juice has to be worth the, the squeeze. You know, that's the question he's always asking: is the juice worth worth the squeeze? And that's kind of the problem I have. I think with who's watching Oliver. That unlike something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, that is this rugged experience. It's really unsettling and and really difficult to watch. But you also feel like this is kind of a meaningful film. That the the filmmakers are going a long way towards trying to describe this is the true psychology of a serial killer and, and confronting that. Whereas Who's Watching Oliver, on the other hand feels much more like a movie that is using these horrific trappings to tell this kind of love story. And that's kind of fine, but it's also, in my heart of hearts, it's not worth the squeeze, you know? Uh, That I don't want to watch a movie that is going to ultimately have this ending that is about escaping this cycle of of violence and, and so forth. When there are other ways to do that story, I think without getting quite as gratuitous as as this movie gets at times, um, there there are things that I, I find shocking in the film in a way that I don't find like. Not that the shocks are undeserved; 
it's just not the particular spice I want in my my films uh, about stuff like this. And, you know, none of that is fortunately played for laughs or anything. I just, you know, it, it's just not the way I want to spend my time when I'm watching a movie. And I would say, like, hey, if that stuff doesn't bother you, like if, hey, there's a scene where a prostitute pees on herself and the, uh, you know, the psychotic mother finds that really entertaining. And, uh, you know, also there's, uh, you know, just stuff like that. You know, it, it's that kind of thing where I'm just like, eh, I don't know if this is really what I want to be watching. And not that I, not just that I don't want to be watching it. I just don't feel like the weight of the movie makes these moments worthwhile. So, yeah, I'm not crazy about who's watching Oliver. I don't think it's a bad movie. And if you've got, I don't, you know, not a stronger stomach, like I can stomach these scenes. I just don't know that they're used best here. So I'm going to give the movie, uh, just two stars. Um, like I said, not a bad film and, and your mileage may vary on this one. Certainly if, if you don't mind that level of, uh, brutality and debasement, uh, you might find some more enjoyment out of it than I did. I, I, like I said, ultimately I just don't find that the, the violence and the, uh, degradation and humiliation, um, to the, the, uh, some of the female characters in the film is ultimately worthwhile. Um, but I can, I can certainly see the argument that it is. Uh, so, you know, if you tell me you like the movie, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm just going to tell you, Hey, that, that wasn't for me. Um, okay. So let us get to our, uh, our next film, our last film of the evening. Can you believe it? Not only, uh, do we, did we do 10 hours of the haunting of Hill house and, and talk for about an hour about that. Uh, you got six more movies, so yay. Um, the last movie I'll talk about is Dead of Night. It's an old uh, TV anthology film directed by Dan Curtis. So Dead of Night is uh, directed by Dan Curtis, written uh, largely by Richard Matheson. Um, in fact, Richard Matheson did all three, so that, that was one of the reasons uh, I was really into watching it. Um, it is a trilogy of stories. Uh, entire, uh, the, the second chance is the first one. There's another one called no such thing as a vampire. And then lastly, uh, one called, uh, Bobby. And this is, uh, it, it's available on shutter and I would recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, you know, it's a, a pretty good lightweight anthology, uh, notably Ed Begley Jr., is in the first segment. The first segment is about a a car, an old, old car that Ed Begley Jr. is restoring, and it ends up sort of taking him back in time, and, you know, crazy things happen. Um, it That one is more Twilight Zone or Amazing Stories than Tales from the Crypt, say. Then, uh, and it's, it's fine. It's a sweet little story. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is a nice little introduction to the anthology. The second segment, I think, is kind of the weakest of the bunch, even though it's got my favorite people in it, which is uh, Patrick McNee, um, which if you don't know who Patrick McNee is, then you're clearly not as old as I am. But also, uh, I like uh, Patrick McNee a lot. He, he's a great old actor that was in, like, I think The Man from Uncle uh, was one that he was known for. Um, geez, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like he, is, uh, he, he has been... 
sort of in everything at one time or another. And uh, at any rate, uh, the the whole premise of, of this segment is that Patrick McNee's wife believes she is being slowly murdered, uh, slowly killed by a vampire and um, is, try, you know, Patrick McNee plays her, her husband who is trying to determine who the vampire is so that uh, they can be stopped and he can save his wife. And, uh, and then there's, um, is it Michael is, I think is the guy. Yeah. Who is like a buddy of Patrick McNeese that he calls in to sort of help, uh, identify the vampire and whatnot. And I don't want to, I don't really want to give it away, but it's one of those, this does feel very tales from the crypt, uh, more EC comics tales from the crypt than the series even. But there's a little twist at the end where it's just like, hey, here's what's really going on in, in uh, No Such Thing as a Vampire. And eh, it's kind of fine. It's all right. But it, it I wish it had been better. Uh, there's a lot of actors in it that I really like. And I wish, uh, like Elisha Cook Jr. Um, is the sort of, right-hand man to Patrick McNee. And if you don't know, just IMDB that guy and you'll know him from something. Um, so at any rate, it's like I said, it, the second one is, is kind of weak. Uh, I, I didn't really blow me away. On the other hand, um, the last segment is entitled Bobby. And this is a little bit of a, a nasty story that, uh, from Richard Matheson that I, I quite like. Where Joan Hackett plays a mother who, uh, whose son, Bobby, the titular Bobby of this story, has died in a drowning incident. And she invokes the hoary powers of darkness to bring Bobby back. Kind of a monkey's paw sort of thing where she makes a, a deal. Um, or, or she makes this convocation, you know, uh, draws some shit on the floor and stands inside it and chants weird words. And... At any rate, Bobby does, in fact, return. Slight spoilers. Except Bobby is not quite right. And what would ostensibly be a happy reunion instead becomes a struggle between uh, mother and resurrected son uh, for survival. And I really like it. I really like this segment. I think this has a really good creepy kid. Um, It's really fun. Uh, It's a... Like I said, it's kind of mean-spirited. It's a nasty little story. And um, so with the gentility and kind of sweetness of the first story and the kind of angry bitterness of the the last story uh, with kind of a weak story in the middle, I think Dead of Night is going to end up getting three stars from me. Um, I think it's good. I would, like I said, I would, I would kind of recommend it. If you've got shutter, throw it on. It's a good background kind of thing. It's a TV movie. It's not terribly well shot. It doesn't look very cinematic, but it's kind of worth it. If you enjoy old twilight zone episodes that are not necessarily horrific, but are just sort of like, Oh, okay. I see what you're getting at Rod Serling, or in this case, Richard Matheson. Uh, okay. That's a nice little story. And that's kind of what it is. It's just a nice little short story. And then the last one is is worth it. Like even if it were just a short film, I would say like, oh, you should watch Bobby. It's kind of uh, kind of cool. And also, there is a pretty hilarious usage of a stunt person in that last segment where it's just like, oh, that doesn't even look like the actress, but 
I'm kind of digging the fact that, you know, again, just a old school practical effects and, uh, it, it has, uh, a pretty good ending does the Bobby segment and whatnot. So yeah, I, uh, I kind of like that stuff, uh, quite a bit, the, the anthology films. And I thought Dev Knight is a, is a pretty good one, uh, a good enough to get three stars out of me. So, um, that's it. That's, uh, all the films so far. Uh, for October, we've got a couple of weeks remaining. In fact, two weeks exactly from the time I record this. So uh, we will keep this up. Thanks for listening. Um, as always, if you would, uh, over at the Devour the Podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast, if you would rate and review, that is super helpful uh, to us. And uh, we, you know, again, trying to continue to provide uh, a lot more Devour for you instead of just the monthly stuff. Um, although there will be the central monthly show, just doing fun little bonus stuff like this. And, um, yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, you can join me over on morbid Mondays. Uh, the Legion podcast has a YouTube channel. Uh, we don't have enough subscribers for it to be like youtube.com forward slash Legion podcast. So another favor you could do for us is subscribe to our YouTube channel and, uh, join me for Morbid Mondays at, uh, seven o'clock central, eight o'clock Eastern on Monday nights, where we just kind of chit chat about some horror stuff and talk about what's on streaming and what's going on around the network and whatnot. Um, and that's going to do it. So thanks again, everybody for listening. Uh, thanks for, for helping out with the show. Thanks for suggesting movies. And, uh, I'm, I'm very excited, uh, for another week of horror films as we get closer to Halloween and my selection of movies gets more classic. So, uh, we'll talk to you in about a week. Bye. We all go a little mad sometimes. 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 Devour.